Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, once again, good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. We are so grateful that you're with us, whether you're in the house, in the chapel, or online. Uh, So grateful that you're worshiping with us here at Emmanuel Faith. We are all about helping people live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, and, and our hope and prayer is that our time, both in musical worship and in the scriptures, leads us to that point today. We're in a what will end up being an almost year-long series in Paul's letter to the Corinthians called 1 Corinthians. And because it's such a long series, we've divided it up into different what we're calling seasons. And we're in a season right now that's entitled Sacred Sexuality. And so over the last few weeks, we've talked about issues of marriage and our sexuality and divorce. And today, we're coming to the topic of singleness. And I want to start out by pointing out what might be the elephant in the room this morning. And that is that being a single in the church can present a bit of a challenge. I mean, think about how much teaching and instruction we give around building strong marriages, uh, around how to raise kids. And, And the list would go on and on and on because I'm married. My personal illustrations tend to, if I don't, if I'm not careful, be about my, my wife and my kids. And so for a single person, just try to think about it through their lens. If you're married this morning, just try to think about it through their lens. There's a lot that goes on specifically and uniquely for married people. In the church, there's often the the subtle assumption that if you're an adult, you're married. Which I think presents some issues for us because our Messiah, who we would argue is the most human person to ever live, his name is Jesus, this just in, he was single. (laughs) I don't know if you're aware of that, right? And so at the onset of our time, I just want to sort of point out the elephant in the room, and let's just name that. And number two, I just want you to know, whether you're single or married, you are welcome here. Okay? You're welcome here. Now, there are a number of reasons that people find themselves single. Divorced, separated, widowed. And then what we see in the statistics is that an increasing number of Americans are remaining single for longer and longer. Uh, uh, Pew Research, which does a a number of different research surveys throughout the year, in 2019, they found that 38% of American adults between the ages of 25 and 54 were single. 38%. So that that was up from 29% in 1990. So, so that demographic is growing larger and larger. And you may wonder, like I did, well, what about, what about in Escondido? Like, what, what's the, what are the stats here around us? Turns out 36% of adults in Escondido are unmarried and, and or never have been married. 10% are divorced and 5% are widowed. And I say that to share with you that if you start to check out immediately when you go, all right, we're talking about singleness, I'm married, this isn't for me. It certainly is for you and it's for people that you care about and you love and it's for people that as a church, we long to reach with the hope of the gospel, amen? So this isn't an issue that pertains to some, it's an issue that pertains to all. I've been a lead pastor now for 10 years, but before I was a lead pastor, I served as Emmanuel Face College Pastor. 
And I absolutely loved that season of ministry and got to walk with college students through some unique challenges that that age specifically is presented with. Questions like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Right? Uh, Questions like, God, what's your will for my life? And inevitably, inevitably, the question would often come up, God, how do I find the one? You know that question, right? The the mythical one. The, the, The one person that God designed specifically and uniquely for me. How do I find that one? Never mind becoming the one, but let's, we'll just set that off to the side for, for a moment, right? How do we find the one? That's such a great question. I'm going to answer that for you this morning. If you have your Bible, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm glad you found that funny because I am sort of saying that tongue-in-cheek that maybe just maybe there isn't a mythical one for each one of us. And Paul is subtly actually going to address that in our passage of study this morning. See, Paul first broached the issue of singleness in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. You may have noticed that we sort of skipped over it a bit, and we're going to drill down now as we expand on this topic in some of the later portions of chapter 7. But where he first started talking about the issue of singleness was in verse 7. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Are you there? Right on. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another kind. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, quick time out. Uh, Many scholars think that Paul's saying that at one point he was married and that he is now widowed. Which, keep that in the back of your mind if you want a little chuckle as we read throughout the rest of our topic this morning. Because Paul is going to say it at many times during his teaching this morning, I wish that you would remain single like I am, which makes you wonder what kind of marriage Paul had. <laughs> Verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So here's Paul's principle. Here's what he says. He just lays it out. The ideal, stay single if you can. And if you burn with passion, if your body's telling you that you need to get married, then I guess you can go ahead and get married. (laughs) That's the Ryan Paulson paraphrase. I can't control myself, so I might as well get married. (laughs) Now, I have officiated a number of weddings, and I can assure you I have never used this passage... (laughs) in any of those charges. I'm doing a wedding tomorrow. Can't use the sermon I'm giving today in tomorrow's wedding. I'm just gonna tell you that. I mean, you sort of get the idea of like, well, Bob's burning with passion, so that's why we're here today, right? Like, let's do this. So I say all that to just at least cause us to step back a little bit and admit this teaching sounds a bit strange to our ears, does it not? It's not something that we often hear. I mean, marriage is sort of one of the cornerstones of Christianity. We, we quote-unquote, defend marriage. And the question that many single people face, especially within the church, is when are you going to get married? 
When are you, you going to make that step to get married? And it might be worth pausing to ponder why Paul's teaching on marriage and singleness never caught on. Like, like, why haven't we adopted this as more of a normative thought in our day and our time? I think it might benefit us to ask the question, have we baptized marriage and deified it to a place that maybe the scriptures do not? Is our view of marriage, it might be worth asking, more informed by the Romantic era than it is by the scriptures? These are all questions that sort of run in the background of my mind as I read through 1 Corinthians 7. Now, I think that Paul was addressing a specific question that the Corinthian church posed to him. Remember, in verse 1 of chapter 7, he said, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So 1 Corinthians, the letter, is a response to some questions that Paul had. And I think one of the questions Paul was asked was, Gosh, if you're, if you're single, should you get married? Or should you remain single? And you'll notice throughout the study this morning that Paul doesn't give a direct answer to that. He says, well... It depends. And it turns out that the scriptures are more interested in teaching us what we might call discernment than they are in giving us just hard and fast black and white rules to apply. They want to teach us how to stay in step with the spirit or to say it like this, that God most often directs through the spirit's leading, not through binding legislation. That this passage specifically about singleness and marriage, I would argue also gives the follower of Jesus a lens through which to run every decision we make through. And it's not a hard and fast, this is going to answer every single question, or this is going to help you find the mythical one, or this is going to tell you whether or not you should remain single, or whether or not you should get married, or whether or not you should move, or whether or not you should stay, or whether or not you should take this job, or whether or not you should take that job. But it is going to present us with some data points along the way through which we can run a decision through. And Paul's case study is specifically about whether or not single people should get married. And so he picks up this conversation down in verse 25. Jump down there with me. And he's going to reiterate essentially what he'd already said in verses 7 through 9. And this is the way he writes it in verse 25. He says, now concerning the the betrothed. Now if you have a NASB translation in front of you, or you have an NIV version in front of you, that word betrothed is translated as what? virgins, right? And so um, when Paul's writing, there's some debate about who he's writing to, but I'm pretty convinced that he is writing not necessarily to those who hadn't had sexual intercourse, but to those who are of marriageable age, but were single, okay? And here's what he says. How's this for the black and white answer? Should we get married or not? I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment. Uh, um, In the Greek, it's, I give my opinion, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. It's really interesting. I have no command from the Lord. If you think back to verse 12, remember in verse 12, Paul says, I, not the Lord. And he just wants to put all of his cards on the table and he's telling, he's telling the Corinthian church, I am not simply taking a teaching from Jesus and just giving it to you. I, I'm applying it for you, he says 
in a pastoral way. We didn't hear Jesus teach this exact thing. He, he didn't give a direct answer to this question. So Paul's saying, I'm doing my best. I'm giving you my, my judgment or my opinion, and I'm telling you what I think you should do. Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, everybody say present distress with me, present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So let me uh, remind you of where we were last week. Last week, we made the point that your current circumstances are God's divine calling. Remain as you were when you were called. Paul said in verse 20 and 24, he simply reiterates the exact same thing in this passage. The question becomes, what in the world is this present distress that he's talking about? Uh, many scholars think that he's talking about a famine that hit the Corinthian Peninsula in roughly 51 A.D. Now, you may remember that Paul wrote this letter, we think, in 54 to 55 AD. And so certainly they are still living in the wake of this food shortage. And so Paul's writing to the Corinthian church and he's saying, listen, when you think about whether or not you should remain single or whether or not you should get married, keep in mind the conditions in which you live. Which is a really interesting way of saying, okay, when you think about whether or not you should get married or stay single, take the data into account. Take the data into account. Because getting married has responsibilities that are attached to it. Can I get an amen? You may just have kids, which means that you have a few more mouths to feed. And in the midst of a famine, that could be an issue. Essentially, Paul's saying, when you're thinking about getting married, if you are single, you need to count the cost. I can remember asking Kelly's dad for permission to marry her. His first question was, how do you plan on providing for my daughter? He's simply applying Paul's teaching here, okay? To the data, the data. And I love, I love that Paul is a realist. He wants them to look at the world around them. He's not suggesting that the Corinthian church should bury their head in the sand and ignore all the objective data and just go off a subjective feeling of love. He's saying, no, 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 look at the world around you. And then make a wise decision in light of the world that you live in. I think what Paul would say is, don't ignore your circumstances. But I think we would also, maybe all of us might agree that there are times when God tells us to take a bold step of faith where none of the objective data matches up to the step of faith. Yes? And so this is the tension that we live in. We have to look at the world that we actually live in and ask the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Not, not in a fantasy world, but, but in this world right now. And Paul wants the Corinthian church to do that. He wants them to look at the data. But can't you just imagine somebody in Corinth raising their hand and going, hey, Paul, I, I just got married. Should I have done that? Was I wrong? Verse 29. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Take a deep breath. 
If a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Don't amen that. That's not good, right? And I would spare you of that. And Paul's point is, I'm not laying down hard and fast rules here. I'm giving you wisdom that you have to seek by the Spirit's leading and guidance to apply in your everyday life. I look at this like, if you marry, you will have worldly troubles. And I don't know, I find myself, something rises up in me and wants to go, well, Paul, like, I really enjoy being married. I love being married. It's wonderful. And yet, there are challenges that come along the way also, aren't there? It's not all bliss. I mean, for Kelly it is, but for other people, I can imagine... Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. And so Paul's just speaking honestly, unlike me, right? And here's the way he continues his thought. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, just a clarification. As we'll see in just a few moments, he is not calling people to ignore their spouse. He is not but to recognize that while they have a responsibility to care for and attend to the needs of their spouse, which he's already dealt with, by the way, they also have a calling from the Lord to live into. And so he goes on, and here's what he says. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no good. See, see there's that um, economic sense that something is awry in Corinth. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. And then he gets to what I would argue is his point in this section. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is fascinating because we just said that we ought to take into account the data. The, the, the present distress. And now Paul says... This world in its form is passing away. So think about the future. So when we're making decisions in general, when these people are making decisions about whether or not to stay single or get married, which one of those should they take into account? The reality that their present distress was a very real pressing concern for those in Corinth at the time, or the reality that Jesus has conquered all, that a new world is currently breaking forth, and that one day God will make all things new. Which one of those polarities should they live in? Yes! Right? Yes! And I think too much of the time we, we simplify something that's more complicated than we'd like to admit. It's not just objective data. And it's not only one day God will make all things new. It is the tension of living in between that we are invited to. The tension that I would argue or define or, or sort of term as data and destiny. That as Jesus followers, our goal is to fully acknowledge the world as it is, with all of its joy and all of its pain and all of its brokenness, and it is to defiantly hope and declare that the world will one day be made new. 
And let's just admit that it's easier to make decisions with only one of those things in mind. That the tension of engaging both, and, and, and I've heard it said that some tensions are meant to be managed, not resolved. This is one of those, I would argue. So what does he mean by this world is passing away? And it is intentionally in the Greek, in the present tense. It is currently happening. So was Paul writing to the church in Corinth in 54 AD and saying, don't get married because Jesus is about to come back? And your silence is indicative of the challenge that that presents. Because if we say, no, that's not what he meant, we go, well, then how should we read that? And if we say, yes, we have to admit he was wrong. And it paints us into a bit of a corner, doesn't it? Well, maybe it just paints me into a bit of a corner because I'm the one who has to stand up here and tell you what it means, right? I love the way that C.E.B. Cranfield put it when he said this. He said, the parousia or the return of Christ is near. Not in the sense that it must necessarily occur within a few months or years, but in the sense that it may occur at any moment. And in that sense, since the decisive event in history has already taken place in the ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, all subsequent history is a kind of epilogue. Which, by the way, we live in. We live in the epilogue necessarily in a real sense short, even though it may last a very long time. And what he's echoing is what Paul's saying is that we live in between two advents. Christ has come and Christ will come, what? Again. Christ will come again. And those are two things that Paul wants us to wrestle with when it comes to very real decision-making. And I think, as I tried to unpack, like, Paul, why in the world would you include this in a section on singleness and marriage? There's two things that started to stand out to me. Number one, you do know that our eternal destiny as resurrected physical beings here on a renewed earth, that in that time there will be no marriage. Jesus would teach this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. When he was being questioned about, um, there's a woman who had been married a number of different times because her husbands kept dying and she got remarried. And the question was, who's going to be her husband at the resurrection? And Jesus answered, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but all are like angels in heaven. And I think Paul is subtly saying, you're spending a ton of time thinking about something that isn't going to be a part of your eternity. The second thing, he wants them to keep in mind is that this world is passing away, but that a new creation is bursting forth right in the midst of it. That Jesus would say, behold, I am making all things new. The African-American spiritual steal away to Jesus says, the trumpet sounds within my soul. I ain't got longer to stay here. That something inside of you is turned, something is different, and it affects the way that you make decisions when you think about the reality that Christ will one day return and make all things new. It's as though the, the lens of our focus becomes more and more clear. So 
Paul invites the church to struggle and to wrestle with the tension between data and destiny. And the second thing, the second, what, what I would call couplet of tension that they're called to engage is this, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Now that word anxious in the Greek is the word meripnao, and it quite literally means to be pulled apart. It's the opposite of being whole. When you read that word anxious, you should have in your mind sort of um, to, uh, somebody holding two ropes on either, in either hand and then being pulled in two different directions. That's the word picture that anxious paints for us. He says, verse 32, his interests are divided. The unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, quite literally in the Greek, not to strangle you. And, and don't you just love Paul's pastoral heart? He's going, this isn't, please don't make this a law. He's begging with them. Like, don't put this in stone. This is guidance for you, not law. Not to lay any restraint up, upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. See, his first anchor point for the tension, the second part of tension that we're called to step into is asking ourselves the question, what does it look like to live devoted? And Paul's argument is it's easier to live wholly devoted to the Lord when you are single because when you are married, you have other things that you have to attend to in addition to your devotion to the Lord. I love the way that he says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He puts the, the calling or the picture out there really, really clearly for the Corinthian church. He said, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure, say it with me, Manual faith. Devotion. I heard you out in the chapel too. Devotion to Christ. That word devotion is literally the word, like, it, it paints the word picture to wait upon, to attend to. A waiter or waitress is devoted to you when you take a drink of your water, put it back on your table, and it's full before you even think about picking it up again. That's the word devoted. And Paul's point is, listen, if you are married... You can't live like you're not. You can't use your spirituality as a reason to live like you're not. And I'm reminded of the fact, maybe cautionary tales would be a good sort of category to put this under. That there have been many, many godly people who have served Jesus and who he has used to do great things for his kingdom. And they've done so at the expense of their family. Their family was, was sacrificed on the altar of ministry. I, I think of men like William Carey, who's often referred to as the father of modern missions. Amazing impact in China. And yet, it came at the cost of his family and his wife, who, who, 
quite literally lost her mind. And he kept going. I think of prolific authors, men like um, A.W. Tozer, whose marriage grew so cold because he was so devoted to teaching and studying and preaching the good news, writing, just a prolific author. And when he passed away, his wife wrote about him and she said that Aiden loved Jesus, but never loved me. And what Paul's writing here is, that is not a win for the gospel. It's not a win. That's not a success story. That is a cautionary tale that we should pause and we should say, okay, the reality is if you are married and if you have kids, then you have a responsibility to your spouse and to your kids. And that needs to be taken into account. Now, Paul obviously recognizes that there are couples that serve Jesus better together than they could alone. Uh, I think of Priscilla and Aquila and, and Paul's interaction with them, sort of the, the ministry power couple. And I think his argument to the Corinthian church and, and to us this morning is simply this. We should ask ourselves the question, what will allow me to live wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus? What positions me best to do that? As a bit of an aside, I think it's um, ironic and, and even a bit sad that not only has the church not taken, uh, my, my read, my read, not taken Paul's guidance and wisdom that he put forth. We haven't taken it seriously, but oftentimes we, we do the exact opposite of what he's saying. I, I had um, a good friend who went to a reputable seminary, graduated with his Master's of Divinity, loved people, loved Jesus, taught the scriptures well. And I was having um, coffee with him one time and I said, why, why aren't you in vocational ministry? You've done all the work. Like what? It seems like the desire's there. Why, why aren't you serving in a church? Why aren't, you, why aren't you pastoring? And he goes, I've got a fourth finger disability. He said, fourth finger disability. He held up his ring finger, pointed to it, didn't have anything on it. He was single. And he said, I've been denied from so many jobs as a pastor. At least in part because I'm not married. And I thought, that, I think, is a word for us. How do we apply this scripture? One of the ways we apply it is we say, listen, one of the requirements for being a pastor isn't necessarily that you're married. So Paul challenges the church at Corinth to have a devotion to Jesus, a devotion to Jesus at the forefront of their mind, okay? But listen carefully what I'm going to say next. But he realizes that there are variables that they have to take into consideration. So listen to what he's saying next, and listen to him almost saying, God wants you to be devoted to him, but he doesn't want you to be miserable, Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed. Now, there's a lot of debate 
about who the betrothed are. I think it's most likely people who are engaged and are in preparation in a time period where they're not married yet, but they are moving towards marriage. If his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. His passions refer to what's going on in his body, his sexual desires and his urges. Take that into account, Paul says. Take that into account. Well, Paul, what, I could be devoted to Jesus better if I were single. And he goes, well, what's going on in your body? You need to take that into account also. Verse 37. But whoever is firmly established in his, what? Heart. Being under no, necessary, no necessity, but having his desire under control. And has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. How's that for a black and white answer? <laughs> right? If you, mar- if you have to marry, you'll be fine. If you can avoid it, it'll be better. And like, notice that Paul is reiterating his desire for the single life, but he refuses to legislate it. He brings other things alongside of the decision-making process. Things like, what's going on in your heart? Things like, what's going on in your heart? Things like, what do you want? Like, what's stirring in you? What are your wishes? What are your passions? And he brings that right alongside of devotion to Jesus. And he says, listen, there are times in our life when our devotion to Jesus and our desires, what's going on in our body, may come into conflict with each other. What will allow me to be most effective and most devoted for the kingdom of God? And, And he goes, it may objectively be that you stay single. But then he pulls in, yeah, but you also have to be honest about what's going on in your heart. And you have to be honest about what your true desires are. And you've got to lay them before God. I think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 37, verse 4, delight. Like, give God your whole heart. Come before him in worship and adoration and praise. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the what? Desires of your heart. As if to say, like, bring your whole self to him and then allow him to transform and to change what's going on inside of you if it's off course or allow him to affirm it through the power of his spirit. So often in Christian circles, we think, okay, you have to live fully devoted to Jesus. And what that means is you have got to kill every single desire that's going on inside of you. And Paul says, no, no, those are very real pieces of information that you need to take into account as you enter into the discerning process. I mean, after all, it is God who works in you both to work and to will according to his good plan. God's at work in you. And so, does it mean that we should trust all of our desires? Absolutely not. It means that we should be honest with them. It means that we should pray them. It means that we should lay them down before God. 
And I love the way that St. Augustine put it when he said, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Love God. And then pay attention to the rhythms of your soul. And then do your best to make a wise decision that honors what's going on inside of you if it aligns with what Jesus has taught in the scriptures and allows you to stay holy devoted to God. And so then, Paul lands the plane, and so will we. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. After pointing out this, these tension points between data and destiny, devotion and desire, which, by the way, those all start with D, praise be to God. He says this, <laughs> a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. What's the only object? objective thing that breaks the covenant of marriage. It's death. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, now, how is this for the death of the mythical one person out there? Like Paul says, marry whoever you want, as long as she's a follower of Jesus. Seems like there's a lot of freedom there to me. Verse 40. Yet in my judgment, she is, oh, if you're with me, say that next word with me. She is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. All right, so as we start to sift this down, one of the things Paul wants to say to the Corinthian church that they should keep in mind as they make decisions is, and this is going to be earth shattering for some of us because we've been taught the exact opposite one of the things he wants them to keep in mind is, what's going to make you happier? And you go, that sounds really unspiritual, Ryan. I didn't think God wanted us to be happy. I thought he wanted us to be holy, as if those two things are on opposite sides of the spectrum. And Paul goes, no, no, like, take that into account in a gray area where there's no law, there's no legislation. He goes, it's not a bad thing to take into account. What's going to make me happier? Which decision will align me more with the joy that God wants me to experience? And I love it throughout this whole passage. Go back and read it. You see Paul's pastoral heart on display. He says things like, he's meeting them exactly where they're at. So he'll say things like, I have no, no command only a judgment, only opinion. I think, he says, it would be best. He says, why don't you do this in order to promote good order? Oh, you could do that, but then he says, you, you could do something else and it would be even better. And then here in verse 40, he says, what's going to make you happier? I mean, some might even accuse Paul of being wishy-washy. Paul, just take a stand and tell us what should we do? I mean, there's some of you that go, yeah. And yeah, and yeah. He says, this, these aren't hard and fast rules when it comes to this. What's the spirit doing? What do you want? And then what if you started to believe that God was at work in what you long for and what you want, that, that maybe, just maybe, the Spirit was at work both in you to work and to will according to His good 
pleasure. And then what if you started to take steps that you sensed were in line with where the Spirit was leading, and you even took into account your heart and your desires and what it might look like to be happy moving forward. But you started to question, just like Paul encourages them to, you started to question, will this decision really lead to my joy and happiness? And then you did your best to stay in step with the Spirit. Because that's the last thing that Paul says. He says, I too have the Spirit of God. And I think his point is to the Corinthian church that was very, very proud of the spiritual gifts they had. I think he's saying, I have the Spirit of God too, you guys. You do as well, but so do I. And his point is, yeah, we find full joy as we surrender to the Spirit's lead. So you can see that this passage is certainly about marriage and singleness, but maybe even more than that, it's about how we make decisions. How we make decisions in the kingdom of God, how we make decisions as children of God, and how we are called to take into account both data and destiny, that we are called to take into account both devotion and desires, and that we are called to do our best to live faithfully in the tension of it all. Saying back to God, where are you leading? What are you doing? And how can I follow? What freedom. What freedom. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. So I just want to invite you to pause for a moment. Before you go rushing out of here to whatever else your weekend holds. Would you ask the Spirit of God to just stir something up in you that he wants you to to hold on to and maybe even apply in your life? What's going on that that the Spirit would just put his finger on to say that? I want to deal with that. I, I want you to move forward in that. Would you just ask so, Lord, we all live managing these tensions of of data and destiny, of devotion and desire. And we don't want to resolve those tensions. We want to live in the midst of them faithfully. Your spirit has to do that work in us. And and so so much of the time, I, I look back at you, God, and just say, would you just tell me, yes or no, what is it? And Father, it seems as though you want to lead us more than you want to tell us. And so I pray that we would faithfully stay in step with you, believing that you want our joy more than we do. And so we surrender afresh to you today. Lord, for all the the single people, both in our services and, and worshiping with us online, I pray that you would encourage their heart today. I pray that you would affirm to them they have a place at our table, literally and figuratively, and that you would do a great work for your kingdom in our church body around Escondido North County for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.